Joshua 24 from verse 1. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the river Euphrates and worshipped other gods. But when I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him through Canaan and gave him many descendants, I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there and brought you out. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The cities of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the river Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if the serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we travelled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord... And serve foreign gods. He will turn and bring disaster on you. And make an end of you. After he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua. No. We will serve the Lord. 
Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he reaffirmed for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak tree near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to their own inheritance. After these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Serah, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. And Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the tract of land that Jacob bought for a hundred pieces of silver from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. This became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. And Eliezer, son of Aaron, died and was buried at Gibeah, which had been allotted to his sons Phineas in the hill country of Ephraim. Well, my opening line this morning was going to be that New Year's resolutions are not as popular as they once were. And I didn't realize that Joe was going to do such an excellent job of surveying the room. And uh, as he asked the question, I don't think I saw any hands up to say that they had New Year's resolutions. And I was reflecting on it this week, and it did seem to me that when I was younger, people spoke quite a bit about New Year's resolutions. But now, just searching a bit online, looking at different articles people have written, uh, they're almost overwhelmingly negative about the idea of New Year's resolutions. They have titles like, I have had enough of New Year's resolutions. And the argument goes that, well, we make them, as Joe reminded us, and we fail to keep them, as we all find. And so we feel bad about ourselves, we feel disappointed, and so it's better just not to have any. Well, I want to say this morning, and I think our passage this morning reminds us, that it is a good thing to have aims for our lives. It's a good thing to have aims which we review, which we renew, and at times we we commit to in a particular way. It's good to have aims because we are made to be people who live with a purpose. We're, We're not designed to be aimless beings. We're not designed to be like the leaves that you see blowing in the wind in the garden without any purpose, without any goal. God has not made us that way. He has made us as people to live with purpose, with aims and objectives. And it seems to me that in the scriptures, there are particular moments when God puts before his people a challenge to review and to renew godly aims and objectives for our lives. We see that uh, at the time when, when Moses dies, 
and he challenges the people to go on in serving the Lord. We see it if we think of perhaps when, when King David was dying and he was passing on the baton to his son Solomon. And he challenged him to say, go on with the Lord. And of course, we saw it in our passage this morning. It's a, a key moment because Joshua, the leader of God's people, is an old man. Those are his words. He is about to die. The people have come into the land that God has given to them. They have settled the land. They're about to go to the different areas of the land that God has assigned to them and gifted to them. And as about, they're about to go, Joshua calls them together and he says to them, how are you going to live as you go forward into that land of blessing? And friends, I was thinking this week, what a privilege to meet together as God's people on New Year's Day. What a privilege to open God's word together on New Year's Day. And this day, we're going to see that from this passage, the Lord calls us to serve him. To serve him as his people with a, an undivided, devoted heart. And we're going to do that by, by focusing in on verses 14 to 16 in that reading in Joshua 24, where we heard these words, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the river Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors, the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We're going to see five brief things about this call to serve the Lord. And the first one is that to serve the Lord is the right choice. Our first point, to serve the Lord is the right choice. And the key here is that in light of all that God has done for his people, the Israelites, and for us as his people today, it is a good and right thing to serve him. If you look down at verse 14, you will see that before that call to fear and serve the Lord with faithfulness, there is the word now. And that word now is linking back to all that Joshua has been saying in verses 1 to 13. Because in verses 1 to 13, Joshua and the Lord through Joshua gives God's people a summary history lesson of about 500 years of biblical history. And he surveys four major moments in the people of God. And in each of those moments, he draws out all that God has done. And he says, in light of what God has done, let us serve him. Let's look at them together. As we look at verses 2 and 3, we see the first major movement is that God says, I called you. And he goes back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. And he, he highlights Abraham's spiritual distance from the Lord's. Because as we see there, he, he speaks of Abraham's father, Terah. And what does he highlight about Terah? Well, he highlights that Terah worshipped other gods. End of verse 2. So that reminds us that Abraham and the family he came from, that they weren't a spiritual family who was seeking after the Lord. And then the Lord took Abraham and blessed him. Abraham was from a family of pagan idol worshippers. 
We must be so careful, mustn't we, not to, to Disneyfy the Bible story. And maybe you've watched some Disney films over the Christmas break. And, and the Disney films, they always, uh, they always are so uh, clinical, aren't they? They're so good. The characters generally are so very perfect. But, but Abraham is not like that. Abraham was spiritually miles from God. But not only that, he was physically miles from the land that God was going to take him to, the land of Canaan. And you'll notice there, as, as, as Joshua speaks, he says, I took Canaan, I, sorry, Abraham, I led him to Canaan. I assigned to him the land, I gave him offspring. And there's a, a pattern emerging here that we'll see in each of the four different stages of history. And it's this, that God did it all. The Lord God did, did this all for his people. So the emphasis there in verses 2 to 4, that first moment, is that God called him. It is not that Abraham was a good man whom God said, I'm going to use him. It was that he was an idol-worshipping pagan. And God called him to begin the great nation of the Israelites. But then also notice in the second movement, he says, I rescued you. And there we go back to the Exodus, a period of time we coming to know well as a church family as he worked that book together. And there in verses 5 to 7, the focus is there on the Exodus. And God sends Moses and Aaron to rescue God's people. God afflicts the Egyptians. He brings them out. He brings the Red Sea over the Egyptians when they are threatening the people of God. And again, the emphasis upon what God has done. God says, I have worked in rescuing you. But not only that... God has called them. God has rescued them. God says, I kept you. That's the third major period of history. And there the focus is the wilderness years in verses 8 to 10. And Joshua highlights two different situations, how the Amorites fought against the people of God, but God gave them into his hands. And then he speaks of the, the Moabites. And the Moabites recruited prophets to try and curse the people of God. And God did not listen to them. Instead, he delivered them. Verse 10. So God keeps them. The emphasis upon God's work in keeping his people. He called them. He rescued them. He kept them. And then the fourth major period of history over this 500 years is the conquest. And there God says, I gave you the land. And that's in verses 11 to 13. All the locals, as Tim walked through the list of the different tribes there in verse 11, all those local tribes came up against the people of God, but God gave them into their hands. The Lord describes his care of his people as, as if there was a hornet going ahead of them to help them. And then the great summary, if we look down at verses, the end of verse 12 and then verse 13, look at the summary you did not do it with your own sword and bow, verse 13. So I gave you the land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. What a summary. That God gave them land they hadn't worked for. God gave them cities they didn't build. God gave them vineyards and olive groves they didn't plant. And the emphasis through those four great periods of history is that God did it all. And that is what Joshua is saying here is the first reason for why we should serve the Lord. 
It's the right choice because of all that God has done. You know, as you look through the Israelites and their history, one of their greatest sins was a sin of ingratitude. They forgot all that the Lord had done. And friends, if this morning you're a Christian, if this morning you're trusting in Jesus Christ by faith alone, if you can say, the God of the Bible is my God because Jesus Christ has paid for my sins, the challenge to you and to me is exactly the same. In many ways, Romans 12 and verse 1 is the mirror image of Joshua 24, verses 14 to 16. Because how does Romans 12 and verse 1 begin? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Now, what do we know of God's mercy? Well, if you know the first 11 chapters of Romans, we know a lot of God's mercy. Because right through that book, Paul reminds us of all that God has done for us. And in view of all that God has done, the argument's the same. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Christian, reflect today on the fact that God has called you. God took you when you were serving false gods. And he called you to himself. And not only that, God has saved you through the blood of Jesus Christ. He has rescued you from sin and death. And not only that, he has kept you. You haven't given up. Today, you are trusting in Jesus Christ. Isn't it an amazing thing to wake up every day and still find ourselves trusting the Lord? Because were it for ourselves, we would go another way. But he's kept us. So he has called us, he has saved us, he has kept us. And also he has given us so many blessings, both in this life and even greater ones in the life to come. But friends, I remind us again that we can be just like Israel. We can forget what God has done. I think one of the many reasons we do that is because we see things in the wrong proportions. We forget the enormity of our salvation. And instead we focus on other things that are significant, but not as big as that. I was struck by this quote this week. Nothing should keep our minds busier on earth than this great reality. The Holy One of God was declared unholy so that unholy sinners might stand unblemished before a holy God. That's Mark Jones. Do not forget what God has done for you. And so to serve him is, and I like the old version, the King James way of rendering Romans 12 verse 1. What does it say? It is your reasonable service. It is the right thing to serve the Lord. That's the first thing. Secondly, serving the Lord's the right thing. Secondly, serving the Lord is an exclusive choice. It's the right choice. It's an exclusive choice. And here we see that the call is to serve the Lord with an undivided, fully yielded heart. Now, in Israel... We know from what we've read here, they were surrounded by lots of other nations. And those other nations had ceremonies, occasions, just like the one we read about in Joshua 24. 
where they made commitments to serve their gods and give themselves to their gods. But in doing that, they never made exclusive commitments. They never did that. In fact, the gods that they served permitted that because they acknowledged that they only had power over certain places. They only claimed to be regional gods. Or they, they only had power of a certain thing, so different gods were worshipped if you were going to war or if you needed rain. So they had different gods for different things. So in many ways, religion for all the nations around the Israelites was a bit like how I play Monopoly. Now, maybe you play Monopoly over the Christmas break. And if you have, the way I play Monopoly is like this. Now, my boys and I know, but this is it, okay? This is my strategy. The first few times around the board, you buy everything. And you buy everything because you don't know what other people are going to get and what you're going to get going forward. So you spread the risk by buying everything, and then you've got the best chance of winning. Now, you've got me, boys. That's a strategy, okay? That's how I play. And in the ancient world, that was how people did religion. They spread their worship to different gods because none of them was God over everything. And you didn't make exclusive commitments. You spread your commitments. But the God of the Bible does not allow us to make that kind of a commitment to him. You can't serve him like that. Look at the language of verse 14, middle of the verse. It's really strong, isn't it? Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the river Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. That's an exclusive commitment. It's, it's a definitive, decisive choice. It's a bit like what I have to do when Naomi says, Matthew, you have to get rid of some clothes from the wardrobe. You know, I try and hide them in the loft, in a suitcase, because who knows, I might need them again in the future, because the sizing might change. <laughs> Clothes change size, it's weird. Anyway, so, um, it's, but it's not like that. You have to throw them away. You have to give them to a charity shop. You have to pass them on to your children, or, or, or something like that. You must decisively act, and it's decisive. You, you have to turn from the gods of the past that's the gods of their ancestors worshipped in Egypt. You have to turn from the gods of the present. That's the gods of the Ammonites who are around them. And this call to an exclusive commitment is necessary because we are double-minded. There's always something to throw away. The Israelites need to be told that. And we need to be told that too. And not only that, friends, we are prone to wonder. We need to consciously... Clear out the gods that we are worshipping wrongly. John Calvin spoke of our hearts as being idol factories. That we always create new things to worship and new things to serve. And friends, even the committed can fall into sin. Think of Solomon. King Solomon, he started so well. He had great intentions. He wanted to serve the Lord, but as he... Grew older, grew older, he married women who didn't know the Lord, and he began to worship their gods and turn away from the Lord. So friends, this is an ever-present danger for God's people, and we need to consciously reject false gods. 
Now, now, I think there are some false gods that we're very good at rejecting in evangelical churches. We're good at rejecting the gods maybe of, of wealth and of, and of power, perhaps. But others can slip in and we cannot see them. You know, just like Rachel took some of the family idols with them and hid them, we can keep hold of idols and we can hide them too. And I think one of the big idols that can sneak in in our day is the idol of serving ourselves. Where we worship ourselves rather than worshiping the Lord. And, and it can creep in in lots of ways. It can creep in in our attitude towards church where we think, well, what do I get from it? Rather than I'm coming to worship God. It can creep in in how we think about church and we think, well, well I'm not valued. Or I need to be fulfilled. That's worshipping the self rather than the God of the Bible. And we can even find that this creeps in in how we think about our relationships with the Lord and with the church. Where we might say, well, well, I need to do something for God. I need to serve in this way. We need to be so careful because that is a kind of idolatry of the self because we have made it all about us. And so the challenge is, friends, to decisively put idols away, to throw them away, and instead serve the Lord. Serving the Lord is a right choice in light of all that God has done. Serving the Lord is an exclusive choice. We can only serve him and him alone. But then we see that serving something is a necessary choice. Serving something is a necessary choice. We will all serve something. It's just a question of what. I wonder if you've ever had a medical problem where you've gone to the GP and they've been helpful, but they've said, I'm not quite sure what it is. You need to go and see the specialist. And you've gone to the specialist, and the specialist has listened to you for a bit and then said, but do you have this going on and this going on and this going on? And you said, yeah, that's exactly what's going on for me. They have perfectly diagnose what's going on, and they say, this is what's happening. This is what you're struggling with. This is the problem that you have. Well, if you look at verse 15, verse 15 is a powerful diagnostic statement about our own hearts. Look at what the Lord says to Joshua. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. It's not a striking thing to say. If you don't want to serve the Lord, choose whom you will serve. What's going on there? Well, what's being told us there is that we will all serve something. The question is, what will we serve? So you don't get to choose whether you serve. You get to choose what you serve. And that's what Joshua is putting before the people. Now, that's striking, isn't it? Because the great call of our day is freedom for the individual. But we know that doesn't work because people will always find something to serve. Whether it's the ancient tribe or a highly developed civilization, we all serve because we are all wired for worship. It's, actually, it's part of being an image bearer, is that you are made to worship something and to become like that which you worship. And so the question the Lord puts before us here is, whom or what will you serve? You can't say you're not going to serve because that's how you are. The question is who? 
And the Lord has made his case. That's what he's been doing for his people. And he says, well, what have the false gods ever done for you? Those other gods, what do they do? Well, they master our lives in, in horrible ways. And if we know our hearts and we look something at the world around us, we see how that happens. We see that money, if it masters our lives, it destroys our health and relationships. We see that if personal achievement masters our lives, well, we'll injure others or even ourselves to get what we want. And in the end, every other God will leave you empty and disappointed. And it will never deliver on the promises it makes and will always further enslave us. But in serving the Lord, we serve the one we were made to worship. And that means that our lives are not destroyed. In fact, in serving God, we become more human because we become more of what we're made to be. And he doesn't disappoint because in serving him, we find true joy. So to serve is a necessary choice. And the call is to serve the Lord. It's an exclusive choice. It's the right choice. But then fourthly, we see serving the Lord is a personal choice. We must make this commitment individually and personally. At the end of verse 15, Joshua makes his own personal profession where he says, as for me and my households, we will serve the Lord. And this brings home to us this really important point that we need to do this personally. Somebody else cannot do it for you. Children, you inherit a lot from your parents. And as you get older, you find out just how much you inherit from your parents. Not only do you inherit their good looks, you also inherit their tendencies and their sins. Because we learn from our parents and things are passed down from our parents. There will be a day in the future where you may inherit money from your parents. Lots of things are inherited from our parents. But just listen to this, boys and girls. You cannot inherit faith from your parents. They can point you in the right direction. They can teach you about the Lord. They can sow God's word in your heart. And that's a great thing. But you must make a personal choice. It must be something you choose personally to serve the Lord. But, but it goes beyond that, doesn't it? Not just children. What about couples? You can be encouraged by the faith of your spouse, but you cannot be carried by their faith. It must be a personal choice. What about friendships? Good and godly friends are a great blessing, and we need more spiritual friendships, don't we? Their commitment can influence you for good, and that's a great thing. But ultimately, serving the Lord must be a personal choice. And this personal commitment to serve the Lord should extend over everything in our lives so that we commit to serving the Lord in all of it. So Joshua makes that clear when he says, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord's. What's Joshua saying there? Joshua is saying, for me and everything over which I have influence and responsibility, we're going to serve the Lord. So as a husband and a father, he has a particular responsibility for his home. And this verse does challenge husbands and fathers that we are called to give leadership and to commit to serving the Lord in our marriages and our families. Men, that's a challenge. Will you do that? 
but, but more widely, we are to serve the Lord in everything over which we have responsibility. So whatever you have given responsibility for, commit to serve the Lord in that. In your employment, to put God first. In your studies, to not serve success or grades, but the Lord's. In parenting and home life, making serving God the highest priority. In your leisure time, bring it to God and serving him through that. Make a personal choice to serve God in everything that you do. But then fifthly and finally, we've seen serving Lord is the right choice. Serving the Lord is an exclusive choice. To serve is a necessary choice. We're all made to worship. Serving the Lord is a personal choice we make individually. And then lastly, fifthly, serving the Lord is a supernatural choice. It is only possible to serve the Lord with supernatural help. After the section we've been really focusing on in verses 15 and, sorry, 14 and 15, in verses 16 through to verse 28, you probably noticed as you heard it read, there's a, a conversation that goes back and forth between Joshua and the people, isn't there? Where, where the people make three specific commitments to serve the Lord. They're in verse 18, 21, and 24. And Joshua cautions the people. Look at verse 19 where he says, you are not able to serve the Lord. Now, now what's going on here? Well, Part of what's going on here is he is reminding them that it's a serious thing to commit to serve the Lord, and it's not something that you should walk away from or take on lightly. That's verses 19 and 20, that God is a holy God. He is a jealous God, and so we should take that commitment carefully. But it's also highlighting that we cannot serve the Lord alone, and we need God's help to do so. Because the people can't do it alone. How long did they manage to keep this commitment? Well, if you look down at verse 31, we get an indication of how long they did because it says, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders that outlived him. Now, what does that imply? It implies that there was a point at which they stopped doing so. And if you know the story of the Bible, as we come to the book of Judges, what do we see? We see that downward spiral away from the Lord that, that ends in the most, the most shocking and sad of statements right at the end of the book of Joshua, sorry, the book of Judges, which is there in Judges 21 and verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Or as other versions put it, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the point is that the people alone couldn't serve the Lord. They needed God's help to do that. And as we know the whole story of the scriptures, as we know how God works right through the Bible, we know that God has provided that help for his people. Because there was one who came and offered a completely yielded heart. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. As Joe reminded us that God's mercy is every morn, is new every morning. We rejoice as, as God's people that through Christ our sins are forgiven. And it's every sin that's forgiven. So we wake up each day with a clean slate and that's a great and a glorious thing. 
But not only that, Jesus came and he lived that life that God was calling his people to live perfectly. And then, having gone to the cross, ascended to heaven, what did he do? He sent his spirit to live in every Christian so that his power is at work in us today. And so the supernatural power that we need in order to serve the Lord has been provided through our Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit who lives in us, who enables the obedience that God calls us to in these verses. Now, now some of you will know that um, I like to try to row. And one of the things I've learned as I've got older in rowing is that you stop trying to aim to go faster or further, and you're just content if you hit the same time as last time. And it's disappointing to see how you can't do it. But just now and again, I think, well, what would it be like to have the power of Steve Redgrave or Matthew Pinsent in their prime in me when I'm rowing? Well, if it was like that, then it would be a different experience, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be as hard as I find it every day. And that's something of what God has done for every believer. Because God has come by his spirit to live in us. And that means this. That means that Christ's coming doesn't remove the call to serve the Lord. It actually comes to us with even greater moral force, because we know all that God has done for us in saving us. And it comes to us with renewed spiritual power, because we do it through the Spirit. So friends, 2023 is almost 12 hours old. And the rest of the year has... 8,748 hours to go. And then it'll be 2024. Let us commit as God's people to live each of those hours with the Spirit's help in service to the Lord. Let's resolve, as for me and for my households, we will serve the Lord. Amen.